Reading from page 298, 1 Samuel 26. Let me just pray. Dear God, this is your word. We thank you for it. Uh, We want to revel in it to enjoy it tonight. And we pray that you would uh, speak to us. Amen. Amen. David again spares Saul's life. The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakilah, which faces Jeshimon? So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with his 3,000 select Israelite troops to search there for David. Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill of Hakilah, facing Jeshimon. But David stayed in the wilderness. When David saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts and returned and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. Then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner son of Ner, the commander of the army, had laid down. Saul was lying inside the camp with the army camped around him. David then asked Ahimelech the Hittite and Abishai son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? I'll go with you, said Abishai. So David and Abishai went to the army by night and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, Today God has given your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him, or his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head, and let's go. So David took the spear and water jug near Saul's head, and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on the top of the hill, some distance away. There was a wide space between them. He called out to the army and said to Abner, son of Ner, Aren't you going to answer me, Abner? Abner replied, Who are you that calls it to the king? David said, You're a man, aren't you? And who is like you in Israel? Why didn't you guard your lord the king? Someone came to destroy your lord the king. What you have done is not good. As surely as the Lord lives, you and your men must die, because you did not guard your master, the Lord's anointed. Look around you. Where are the king's spear and water jug that were near his head? Saul recognised David's voice and said, Is that your voice, David, my son? David replied, Yes, it is, my lord the king. And he added, Why is my lord pursuing his servant? What have I done? And what am I wrong am I guilty of now let my lord the king listen to his servant's words if the lord has incited you against me then may he accept an offering if however people have done it may they be cursed before the lord they have driven me today from my share in the lord's inheritance and have said go serve other gods now do not let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of the lord the king of Israel has come to look out to look for a flea as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. 
Come back, David, my son. Because you considered my life precious today, I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong. Here is the king's spear, David answered. Let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord gave you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. Then Saul said to David, May you be blessed, David my son. You will do great things and surely triumph. So David went home on his way, and Saul returned home. But David thought to himself, One of these days I shall be destroyed by Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hands. So David and the 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, son of Maok, king of Gath. David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favour in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns, that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So on that day, Achish gave David six lags, and it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. David lived in Philistine territory for a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. From ancient times, these peoples had lived in the land extending to Shur and Egypt. Whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman alive, but took sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels and clothes. Then David returned to Achish. When Achish asked, Where did you go raiding today? David would say, Against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of Jeramiel, or against the Negev of the Kenites. He did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought this might, they might inform on us and say, this is what David did. And such was David's practice as long as he lived in the Philistine territory. Achish trusted David and said to himself, he has become so obnoxious to his own people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant for life. Thank you very, very much, uh, Rob. Uh, boy, who would want to swap places with him and read all those difficult names? Uh, uh, we're going to, um, we're going to uh, ask uh, the David to uh, uh, look after the children for us. So uh, they're heading off, I think, to their little uh, hidey hole behind the screen. So off they go for that. And someone's got my Bible. Is it my Bible? Yeah, great. Thank you. Uh, never very good without this. Um, nor do I want to be. Um, so, we're going to be looking at those uh, parts that uh, were read to us, and so keep your Bible open as well. But we'll come into that little part of the Bible with a little question. Is it seriously possible 
to love your enemy. Look, we can love our friends, we can love our family, we can love our kids, but enemies? And the trouble is actually that all of us have that challenge. Because it's really hard to go through life without meeting people that you don't like, mostly because they probably don't like you very much. And having any more enemies is actually everybody's problem. It's not just for some. It's not just for the grown-ups. The kids, from the earliest stage they get on the playground or into the nursery group even, they meet up with other kids and uh, they get hurt by them. And it's not just individuals that therefore kind of pick up uh, a desire to uh, dislike those who hurt them. But generally that happens within groups as well, so that white Brits can often not like black Africans or Eastern Europeans or Muslims, and often those groups don't like other groups that they consider to be a threat to them. And yes, certainly the French. And actually at this moment in time, with uh, yesterday's results, we don't like the Australians very much either. But it's not just a kind of anti-racial thing, is it? It actually is anti-everything thing, so that workers don't like bosses, and Labour doesn't like the Tories, and tends to work the other way around as well, because push comes to shove, that kind of dislike of others is everywhere, because as a people, us human beings, we sadly love to hate. There's always us and there's always them. And what's really hard about having hatred is usually the people we hate have generally deserved it. People deserve to be hated sometimes, don't they? I mean, you hate, you hate the playground bully because he's a bully. And you hate the neighbour from hell because he does make life hell. It's hard to stop hating when actually you've got really good reasons to hate. But I want to stop and think about that tonight and to especially tune into what God is telling us from 1 Samuel chapter 26 and 27. And I put those two chapters together because if you looked at them closely you might think that they clash. So in chapter 26, David actually loves his enemy. Chapter 27, he kills men, women and children. Ah, well, let's find out what's going on. Let's start with chapter 26. And the first point to make is that David turns the other cheek. I'm using words that Jesus said, because usually when we hear people quote Jesus on this one, we say, come off it. Well, living in the real world, that kind of thing doesn't work. Well, that was said to David in chapter 26. But David is not a long-haired hippie who just wants to love people. Uh, he is uh, a, a veteran soldier. And this is battlefield tactics to turn the other cheek. Now, the story so far is as uh, Hannah brilliantly told the kids, uh, saws uh, come at David again. You might remember if you were here uh, a couple of uh, 
uh, weeks ago and you, are, you aren't that old and you can remember things still. Uh, in chapter 24, David lets Saul off the hook. But now, here he is, back again, with 3,000 of his chosen men, he calls select men in our passage. So, with that kind of firepower at his disposal, don't miss the power that Saul has to finish David off. That's just one little problem with 3,000 men. And that's actually they're pretty hard to hide. So, they happen to be everywhere, don't they? And David's able to record their movements to find out their sleeping arrangements. And this time, Saul is right in the middle of his army. Remember in chapter 24, he allowed himself to be isolated and he went to the cave all by himself. This time, not that mistake again. He is bang in the middle, right in the centre, and he's sleeping like a baby. Secure, powerful. But, under God's control, because when you see the reason why everybody is getting a good night's sleep in verse 12, it's because God's making sure that they are. The deep sleep comes from him, it says. So everybody's sleeping, and David and Abishai uh, creep up, and uh, this is where we have the real-life uh, uh, dialogue going on that uh, Hannah was telling us about in the uh, children's slot, the two voices. Okay, So there's Abishai saying, this is the night for David to strike. At least Abishai thinks so in verse 8. Have a look. Abishai said to David, Today God has given your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. Well, he's right, isn't he? That's exactly what should happen. After all, Saul is seriously a horrible enemy. He's repaying David with the good that, or for the good that David did in verse 24. And he's come back with evil. In chapter 24, we all know that David didn't want to hurt Saul. He only cut off a bit of his coat. So Abishai is being Mr. Nice Guy to David. He said, look, don't worry about it. I'll do it for you. I can make it quick. It'll only take one stroke. I won't need to. It'll soon be all over. Look, David, you've been kind to Saul. We're back in that cave. But clearly we now need a different approach. And David says, no. We'll just take his spear. In fact, incidentally, look at verse 12. It's so great, isn't it, that when the Bible tells us, it tells us the details because it's telling us the truth. It actually tells in verse 12 that David took the spear. In other words, he wasn't going to let Abishai get anywhere near Saul's head. Not in that mood. But when David is a safe distance away, now probably dawn's breaking, he wakes up Saul's camp. He accuses uh, the commander of the army, or I suppose you could say the king's bodyguard, Abner, of putting Saul's life in danger because he didn't protect his king. Now, of course, David shouting loud across a valley like that is going to make this a public conversation. If you look at verse 14, you see that Abner realized that actually David is talking to the king and Saul realizes that too. And what he says is that he has spared Saul's life. And what he says 
if you look at this and think it through, will bring us to have a brand new love for our enemy. Let's look at what he said. First thing, he really believes that God is greater than his enemy. That's what comes across in what David says to Abishai in verse 10. As surely as the Lord lives, the Lord himself will strike him. Or his time will come some other way. Now, he doesn't know how God is going to reveal his greatness, but God is greater than Saul and therefore will be able to bring an end to this violence and evil. This God is great enough and greater than a very powerful king. Look, could you grab this? This God is greater than anyone who remotely resembles a tyrant in your life. This is the greatness of the God who is bigger and greater than your enemy and can bring an end in his time. Now David doesn't know how he's going to do it. It might be God striking Saul down or it could be old age or it could be that he dies in battle. Uh, David's happy to leave the details to God but he knows God well enough to know that he is greater than this huge obstacle that he faces in front of him. In fact, actually, it's because he knows that God is that great that he stops Abishai killing Saul. He doesn't stop Abishai killing Saul because he wants to protect Saul. He stops him because he wants to protect Abishai. He says, God, this, uh, Abishai, this God is great. In verse 9, you be putting yourself at risk if you incur judgment by killing the Lord's anointed. Really, Abishai, you don't want to be doing that. This God is that great. He understands the greatness of God. It's number one step if we're going to love our enemy. He is greater than our enemy and can deal with our enemy himself without any assistance from us. Point number two. He wants to do his enemy good. If I can put it like this, yes, those who are aggressive really need to be taught a lesson. And the lesson they need to be taught is that they don't need to be aggressive. That's the lesson that David's trying to get in the sh in, in, as he shouts across the valley. Have you sussed out the cleverness of what David's trying to say when he tells Saul that he should really uh, put to death Abner, his bodyguard, his commander of the army, and the whole army, that he should kill them rather than try and kill David? Can you, do you get the point of that? That's the... 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 the, 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 the uh, uh, message in verse 16 because he wants to tell Saul that it was actually David who protected Saul that night when Abner and the whole army should be the ones protecting their king David is the one who protected the king when an enemy came into the camp that enemy was Abishai as it happened who wanted to kill Saul and David is the one who stopped him so David of all the people 
for Mazran is the only one there to protect his king. He has more protection than his army. So get rid of them. If, if, if Saul wants to get rid of something that's really a danger to his life, well get rid of the people who aren't protecting him. But keep David because he's entirely there to uh, uh, keep uh, evil away from Saul, to do him good in that way. David is the one person on that whole, uh, in that whole area that protects the king. <laughs> Get the point of the spear, Saul. The point of the spear that I'm holding in my hand is that actually it proves I want to protect you. The point of your spear. Get the point. I want to protect you. It's here in my hand, not in your head. So you see, the only way to ultimately change, uh, the only way to stop an enemy, is to change him. Saul goes home that day, not because they've had a great military encounter and David has been very clever and beaten him. No, Saul goes home that day because he's absolutely convinced that he is precious to David. That's what he says in verse 21. My life is precious to you. Can you see that that is the goal of loving our enemies, to do it so much that they think they are precious to us. And for that to happen, they really do need to be precious to us. Genuinely precious to us. And that comes across in the way that David talks about Saul. Never has someone beneath him worthy of his scorn, always someone above him. Have you noticed that? In verse 17, he talks about Saul as his lord, the king. Same in verse 18. Same in verse 19. Same in verse 20. He will not call Saul anything else apart from my lord. Those words show how he really thinks. So the only way to help someone to be precious is to think about them in ways that are, if you like, above you rather than beneath you and in doing them active good that they recognize that they are precious to you. So David really does turn the other cheek and so would you and I if we just understand in each of those situations where we're facing someone difficult, that God is greater and can handle that his way. So we don't need to play uh, uh, even with our minds about how we might retaliate. We can keep mind uh, holding them as precious, doing them good because we think in that kind of way. But then interestingly, David, while he turns the other cheek, is also the king who exercises judgment on God's enemies in chapter 27. You could say in his own personal world that he forgives, that's what he does in chapter 26, but in his role as God's Messiah, he acts in judgment against 
particularly those who are not God's people and certainly the Philistines and those other unpronounceable names are not God's people in chapter 27. So he acts against them. He does that by first going to live with uh, the Philistines because he understands that nowhere in his country is safe for him in chapter 27 verse 1 and Achish, the king of the Philistines, is glad to have him because you know what the old saying is that your enemy's enemy is your friend. I know it's late in the evening, but think it through. Your enemy's enemy is your friend, so Achish is happy to welcome David in. He knows about David and Saul, that they are enemies. So the enemies of Saul, the king, must be Achish's friend. And apart from that, this particular friend brings him some extra income because whenever he has the raids and he comes back in verse 10, chapter 27, and says, okay, so where have you been? Well, I've been raiding. And, well, uh, the unspoken implication of that is, and here is your share. What he doesn't tell Saul, at Akish, is that his share has been taken away from his friends. And those people that uh, David targets in verse 8 are all friends of the Philistines and they're all enemies of God's people. They're the people who should really have been cleared out of that land when the Israelites went in to live in it, when they took it over. Now, look, I know we have big reservations and blushes about the God who, in verse 9, allows his Messiah to kill men and women, especially as they're going about their daily business. They're not going to war, they're just living in their place, and then David arrives. And you might think, well, that's the kind of violence that puts me off the God of the Bible until you stop and you think about the God of the Bible. Can I take you back, actually a few hundred years, to something that, David, uh, that, that God said to um, uh, Abraham, way back in the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 15, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, God tells Abraham, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here to, the, to that particular part of the world, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And oddly enough, what are you going to see in those three words is that God is patient, God is good, and God is just. If you just look at those words, that's what you will see. And especially when you see it happening here, 400 years, no, that's four generations later, uh, you've got uh, uh, a bigger view of God's patience and his goodness and that he is just. Let me explain what I mean by that. Why is God patient? Because it's not going to happen straight away to the Amorites. It's going to happen in the fourth generation. 
so it shows that God is patient. He doesn't land on them immediately. He gives them time. He gives them four generations. And yes, in that time, their godlessness had grown, as God knew that it would, but he won't let anyone touch them until they deserved to be punished. God is very patient. Generation after generation after generation, he will wait. The second point is, that God is good. Seriously? When he punishes people, is he good? Well, actually, yes, if you think about it. If God is fair not to punish someone until they deserve it, it's equally true that God is not fair, he's not good, if they do deserve it, and he does nothing. It's a bit like the brilliant illustration that Rob gave us at the start. People think God is some kind of tyrant who's like the traffic warden waiting to pounce. And he isn't because he's patient. But nor is he the one who just basically lets people do what they want to get away with it. The incompetent babysitter. And judgment actually proves that God is good. You can't be good if there's evil in a place that is not getting less or even staying the same but getting more and more and more so the fourth generation and it has now reached fever pitch and you still do nothing about it? And you want to call yourself a good God? No way. If there is evil in this world it reveals that God will respond to it when it is deserving, not before. God is patient, God is good, and then thirdly, you see that God is just. In other words, he warns. Now I know we're looking at men and women, as I say, going around their daily business, they're not coming out to attack David themselves, but actually that is how judgment arrives. And Jesus says that, uh, remember, David is the Old Testament Messiah. Jesus is the New Testament Messiah. And that's what Jesus says. If you just uh, go to Luke chapter 22 and verses 28 to 30, which you'll find on page 1120. Luke chapter two, uh, 22, verses 28 to 30. Read it to you quickly. Hold on a minute, I got that wrong, haven't I? Now I'm in Acts 22, that doesn't help. That's Luke's second book. Uh, I meant to say Luke chapter 22 and 28-30 is where we need to be. No, I've got that wrong too. Well, I'm going to have to uh, go and do some homework to find out where it really is, but let me tell you what it really says, and that is that when people are at the well, in bed, 
It's not that they're doing anything particularly aggressive at the time, but when God's judgment comes, it comes. And we need to take it seriously. We mustn't think that because we're having uh, a day where it seems like it's going to be just another day, the judgment... Luke 21? Yeah, okay. I just, I, this is just, I can't read chapters properly. Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, yes, it certainly, it certainly is there. I'm just trying to... That's right. Uh, and, and so it says, and certainly it's there, isn't it? Um, uh, chapter 21, verse uh, 34, I can see it. Be careful, your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, anxiety of life, and that day will close me suddenly like a trap. Um, and uh, so uh, be careful, because uh, uh, it'll happen. Yeah, yeah, it'll be unexpected. That's right. So, what is happening here in the Old Testament is that past judgment that happened to uh, the folk, like uh, the Amorites, is a preview of future judgment. And so therefore, uh, it is kind of God to let people know before that judgment comes. Think about it. God may be fair to judge people when they do things wrong, but he won't be good if he does it unexpectedly. For God to be good, he not only needs to be patient so that they have time, he not only needs to be right when he judges because wrong needs to be dealt with. But thirdly, he also needs to give people warning because if he parts unexpectedly, what goodness is there in that? But God uses what happens in the Old Testament to give us a view of the future that helps us to be prepared for it. So what is that then for us? to remember from tonight. But can I start by saying if you're new to church, I wonder if it strikes you that God is kind to talk to you tonight from the Bible, not a voice in your head or anything that you might say is subjective and you don't quite know where to trust it or not, but no, from the Bible in words of English that you can understand, is it kind of God to talk to you about what your future will be like if you are not one of his people? When you hear God speak like this, will you think, it, think of him as a tyrant who threatens? Or will you thank him for being patient with you, for being fair with you, and for warning you? 
And best of all, that he actually dies for you. That he prepares a saviour in his son to take that judgment on himself so that you don't have to face it. How can you say that a God is not good when his judgment has all the marks of a God who is patient, of a God who is right, of a God who warns, and of a God who saves? How can we ever say that God's judgment is nothing but good? So my friends, can I plead with you? Will you think about your future as much as God thinks about your future? And ask him to save you from hell, which is what is previewed in verse 9 of 1 Samuel chapter 27, when everyone is removed. Secondly, it may be that you are used to church. You come to this church, you come to other churches, and hey, look, you've lost count number of times you have sung songs about God being great. Okay? The moment someone says, is God great? You kind of nod your head wisely and you agree and actually it goes well until it's not the singing but the enemy that comes in front of you in Monday morning. It's what you want to do then that will show whether you think God is really great or not. Do you want to ultimately hurt him in some way, get him out of your hair in some way, destroy him in some way? I'm using extreme language, but you know what I mean. We can get, uh, uh, wish people were out of our lives. But it's at that point that really what we're revealing is that we don't think God is greater. We want someone ourselves perhaps to take the law into our own hands and do something about this particular evil that has come into our lives. Can you trust God to deal with whatever it is that's the antagonist in your life without you doing anything against him yourself? That's the mark of someone who thinks God is really great, not the ones who sing in church. But not just the ones who sing in church. They should they sing in church and that would be the right thing. But it is sad, isn't it, when the biggest grudges against people are carried by people who go to church and who say they believe God is great. When the truth is, the mark of someone who knows that God is great is that they say, okay, God, that is yours, not mine. I won't go near harming that person. Then you know that God is great. Well, it may be, thirdly, that you are someone who deeply values God's King for the very gracious way that he deals with his enemies. My friend, can you say that tonight's big word, important word for you and for me, if we call ourselves Christians, is that we should be handling our enemies the same way.
I asked his knights of start, is it possible to really love our enemies? I want to end by saying it is absolutely vital that we love our enemies. And here's the reason why. I just don't think you can compartmentalize love. If we've got hatred in our system, however mild or intense it might be, it will eat our capacity to love right across the board. Not just our capacity to love this person, but actually our capacity to love everyone in our lives. Anger, hatred, is a love drain. It's a love hoover. It will take love out of you, for anyone, if we let it fester against someone. So we need to learn how to love them, our enemies. I mean, really loving them. That doesn't mean letting them off the hook for what they've done. David doesn't do that with, uh, um, with Saul. He just thinks that God is great uh, and the details uh, can be his to attend to. But what David does is what we might do, which is to fill our thoughts about our enemy in a way that engenders love. Like David calling Saul Lord, his words mirroring his thoughts, seeing his enemy as greater than him rather than less than him. That's how he spoke to Abishai, not just when he was talking to Saul, and you might say, oh, he's only using Lord language to butter him up. That's actually how he spoke to Abishai as well. When he spoke to Abishai, he could have referred to Saul as the Lord's rejected. He'd have been perfectly true if he'd done that. But instead he calls him the Lord's anointed. Even behind his back, even to his friends. This is the high view that he has. And he wants his friends to have. Now, we want to be handling our thinking in a way that ultimately leads to our acting, in a way that ultimately leads to our enemies, thinking that they are precious to us. Which is what Saul realized about David. Now, I'm not saying this is the magic cure to turn your enemies into friends. Okay? Uh, Saul went home on that day as David's friend but David didn't trust him he realized that uh, that was unlikely to last he's already been in chapter 24 and he sees Saul come back and so David goes and uh, <coughs> escapes and takes evasive action as much as he possibly can And this is the last time he will see Saul. They won't ever cross paths again. But what David does is not to switch off Saul's anger. What he does is to keep switching on his own love. By loving his enemy in chapter 26, you will find David being able to love his enemies down the track when we get to those as well.
And that's exactly like Jesus, isn't it? Because he died for us when we were his enemies. How precious are we to him? Jesus deals with his enemies thinking that we are, our lives are precious to him. That's how Jesus deals with us. And our great joy, our great privilege is to go and start loving people who maybe fill us with rage and anger and disappointment and all the other negative feelings we might have of them and to instead make them precious to us. I want to suggest that that's something that would be a wonderful thing for us to go into the new week wanting to do. And I want to suggest that in a moment of quiet we might just want to talk to God about what we've heard and maybe ask for his help in areas where we think we need it, particularly maybe with some people that we think we need it with. I'd be very surprised if you and I can't put a name to <coughs> specific soul-like people in our lives. Let's do that. And then I'm going to read a final bit of the Bible from Romans chapter 5 which talks about how God loves his enemies and I'm going to pray. But let's have a moment of quiet where you pray first quietly without um, speaking aloud in the privacy of your own heart talk to God and uh, we'll allow us an opportunity to do that in quiet. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. For a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our gracious God, we do want to thank you that we, your enemies, we who were sinners, were precious in your sight. And we thank you for revealing to us uh, the full wonder of your love, even in judgment. And as we do that, Father, we would love to turn to you for help that we might love like you. Father, we see the urgency of that. We don't want to lose our ability to love by opening the door to hate. 
And we want, therefore, to be so won over by the great love that you have for us in the Lord Jesus that we would ask you, Holy Spirit, to fill our own lives with a supreme confidence that you are so great. We don't need to hurt our enemies. And please would you instead put into our hearts a great desire to think highly and to do good for the glory of your great name. Amen.